Welcome to the podcast. This is Clocker Counter. I'm James Wiseman, and with me is Ryan Young. If somehow you're listening to this podcast and you don't know who we are, I can't imagine why you would be. But Ryan Young is one of the best freestylers in the world. He's been the number one ranked player since at least 2018. I know because I've been right behind him at number two, begging to get to the top. And he's a five-time world champion, three-time repeat, three-peat world co-op champion, and one of my best friends. Ryan, take it away. All right. And this is James Wiseman, the 2013 number one player in the world, also the owner of the Spin Factory, and some say the greatest player of all time. 2013, what a fall from grace. 10, 10 years just looking, looking at the top, wondering where it all went wrong. Yeah, well, we'll get to that. Yes, we will. So we have a lot of ideas for this podcast. Uh, we've talked about doing it for many, many years and kind of what we want to do, or at least why I wanted to be involved with this podcast is, you know, we have so many conversations at tournaments, dinners, whatever, where people are really just talking about freestyle and talking about, you know, the, the details of the game and, you know, what makes like a great player? Like, how do you do certain kinds of moves? How can you compete better? Just like the real nitty gritty kind of like sports center analysis of freestyle and what this game is about. And, and we wanted to do something like more like that and hopefully get people excited and interested in, in the nuances of freestyle. What do you think, Ryan? Like, why do you, what do you want to make a podcast? Yeah, I really just want to disagree with you in the public setting because I think people think we agree on everything. That, that is so true. I also want people to know that you're not always very nice. You know, we were actually, we had a video night here last night with some of the Duke freestylers. And we were watching the video of you and Jake at Virginia and Macy asked me to pause it. And she got such a kick out of you smiling the whole time you were freestyling and your nickname is Ryan smiles. And I, I want the whole world to know that behind this nice smiley Ryan is a super heated, controversial freestyle historian with very idiosyncratic views, many of which I disagree with. <laughs> well, lucky for our listeners, they're going to be able to hear about us talking every two weeks. So we'll be releasing yeah, that's these the episodes. Yeah. Bi-monthly. Does that mean twice a month or every two months? Nobody Probably knows, both. but this is going to be twice a month. <laughs> cool. So we have a bunch of different segment ideas that we're going to do. But first, we have a little bit of a, a challenge, which is that at least at the beginning, if people bring us any segment idea, we promise to try it at least once. Now, like good freestylers, we might bail in the middle of it. Like there's no guarantee that we finish the segment. But if you send us a segment idea, we promise we will try it one time. But beyond that, we have a few different things we want to do. We have a underrated, overrated, properly rated segment where we talk about different subjects and whether they're underrated, overrated, or properly rated. We have different rankings and drafts. So one thing that we've talked about recently is ranking the number one players in the world, the top 10 number one players in the world from best to worst. Um, we're going to do some video reviews. So we're going to be doing a review of all the world's podiums. And what else, Ryan? What other ideas do you want to see in this podcast? Yeah, we'll do see in this coaching podcast? or etiquette segments where we, it's a little more educational. We try and impart our knowledge on everyone. Uh, we also have awards. I think we both have a lot of people we're thankful for and we'll give some shout outs. 
Yes, and, and then, they won't be boring like, oh, you know, Matt Gauthier is the best player ever. Yes, he is. We know. But we're going to try to like really highlight some different players and kind of the cool things they're doing and different impacts in a way that isn't just a boring love fest. So don't worry. It'll be hopefully somewhat interesting. If not, we'll get rid of it. But speaking <laughs> of segments, we are going to do one preview segment on this podcast. In the future, podcast will have many segments. It'll be super long probably because Ryan and I start to blither. But for now, we just have one opening segment. And this is, I'm very excited about this. We actually have our first listener submitted question on, it's not really a jam etiquette question, but it's kind of like how to jam better in certain environments. And it's pretty amazing that we have a question from a listener because we don't have any listeners yet. But this is a real question. It's anonymous. The person asked not to be named, but let me pull it up here. Okay, here's the question. I struggle to find my flow in bigger jams. I love the energy of going to tournaments, but I feel like I can never show my best because the jams get too big. I try to start a new jam off to the side with just two or three people, but inevitably more people join in and I don't blame them. I'm frustrated. What should I do? This is from a shy jammer looking to spread my wings. Ryan, your thoughts. Okay. My first thing is, I've had this issue before and I've wondered if just bringing five discs to the jam and every time you get too big, you just pull out another disc and start another jam. Yeah, but, I mean, I think there's different ways to approach this, right? Like yeah. one view would be, it's a question about how to entice people into new jams and, you know, start new jams that people are interested in joining and keeping it in groups of two, three, four or five or whatever the right number is. And that I sort of agree, like you can always just keep starting new jams and I think it's pretty rare for people to actually just let you sit in the corner playing by yourself for a while. I think almost always people will come join you. And if you don't, I mean, write us. We should talk about that. That would be kind of concerning. But I think there's another question, which I think you would have a lot of insight into, which is kind of how do you play better in bigger jams? Because I do think it is a lot harder to play well in a big jam. And I think it's also harder for big jams to be successful. Like I think a lot of us have this experience of, the big mob op with all these great players and you think it's going to be really amazing, but it doesn't quite get that magic going. And it's just something about the bigger jam that makes it harder. So what do you think some of the solutions are to making that jam really work? Okay. So, uh, I think the main thing is you have to play to the situation. So I think it's more intuitive to play naturally in a small jam, but in a big jam, you have to have like your big jam tools out. So that I think a common like strategy most people use is the one touch strategy. So like mm -hmm. that's a very easy way for a big jam to become productive is if everyone's doing one touch. So instead of like three people doing three touches, you have like nine people doing one and you can have the same amount of content in the same amount of time, but with more people and that. Okay. You touched on a lot of things that interest me. So one, I definitely agree about the one touch mentality. I think, as the jam gets bigger, you have to be more and more focused on doing one move that leads to a pass. And, and oftentimes that one move is the pass. So the disc gets at you, you immediately brush it to somebody else. Uh, you immediately roll it to someone else. You immediately downwind set it to somebody else, whatever. Um, but I also add, and this should be a subject for another podcast, that one touch can include catching. So I don't think you can... It's very hard to catch it too much or too early. 
especially if you're not sure what to do. So catching is almost always a good answer. Like, yes, it can be a little bit early, but it doesn't usually kill the momentum to catch it early. And that can be a good one touch strategy. And that relates to something you said that I care a lot about, which is that the amount that you touch the disc kind of depends entirely on the length of time you play and how you distribute the disc among the different players. Meaning, let's take you and me jamming for 30 seconds. I can do an indie and you can do an indie. Each indie can be 15 seconds and we each got the disc for 15 seconds. Or we can do one touch for 30 seconds and we'll probably each average about 15 seconds over the 30 second period. So either way, we do get the disc the same amount of time. It's just a different distribution and kind of like cadence to when we get the disc. So like one thing I, I try to like think about and I think it's just worth knowing whether you're you know, more in indies or more in co-op that what determines whether, what determines your touch time is really a factor of like how long you play and, you know, like who, if someone's like actually hogging the disc, meaning like if I'm doing indies and you're doing one touch, that's a problem. But if like we're both doing indies, we're kind of getting the same amount of touch time. Or if we're both doing one touch, we're also getting the same amount of touch time. The problems occur when some people in the jam are really indie focused and other people are one touch focused. And that I don't know if I have a great solution for. It's like, I wonder if you have an idea about that. Because I've definitely had the experience where I go in a jam and I'm trying to make one touch happen, but it's kind of falling on deaf ears and the other players want to do more indies. And I'm not against people doing indies. Like, I think that's a whole conversation I would love to have. But you kind of need to all be on the same page about what style of jam you're trying to have. But like, what do you do if you feel like you're communicating that we're having a one-touch jam, but the other freestylers aren't really listening. Yeah, so for that one specific case, what I'll do is I'll use proximity. So in an indie-heavy jam, people stand far apart, but if you stand closer to people, that kind of signals that it's time to pass it to me because I'm standing so close. So it's just one tool you can use. That's a great point. And I like to think of it kind of tongue-in-cheek as like the passive-aggressive body positioning where you kind of put yourself in the position for the set and you're kind of like, hey, I'm here. You should set it to me. But I also think it's something you have to be careful about because I think sometimes players abuse that too much. And like I was actually explaining this to my Durham freestylers recently. If you want to find that position, if at least if this is a healthy jam, if the jam is healthy, you want to find a position that gives optionality but doesn't force it. So I try to put myself in a position where I say, okay, I'm here and you can set it to me but I'm not in your way and I'm not forcing you to set it to me if you don't want to, because it's fine if you want to catch it or you have something else planned. But I do think when the jam is unhealthy and you have people that are kind of, for lack of a better word, hogging the disc, standing close to them to kind of assert your presence so that they have to set it to you to keep it moving, definitely can help make the jam more successful. Do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, I do. Like now there's another factor to this that we've been talking about lately. And I don't know if you necessarily agree with me, but I do think there's something about somewhat exponential increases in complexity as the jam gets bigger. Now that was a big wordful. So what I mean is that in a two person jam, things are relatively simple and it's pretty easy to read what your partner is going to do and the universe of things that are available to you and your partner are limited enough that it's very easy to communicate. But as you add people to the jam, it gets more and more difficult to communicate effectively. 
and make the jam work. So, I mean, take an extreme example. If you have 20 people in a jam, which I have seen happen, I have been a part of a 20 person jam before. It's, there's so many options about who you pass to, what you do, what's available that you can't all be on the same page about what's about to happen. And you're inevitably going to have conflict. So I think you're about to set it to me, but you're actually about to set it to somebody else. So I'm standing in the wrong place and I get in the way of the desk. That's, that's impossible to do in a two person jam. It's like, there's so few people that it's, you know, there's, there's no way for me to like stand in the wrong place. I mean, I guess I could stand right in front of you and block your wind, but like generally I'm not going to be in the way three person jam. It's pretty easy to navigate, but as you add more people, it gets really hard. And I do think this is like somewhat under people's radar. Cause I do think something I experience a lot is you have the, you know, a jam where it's like five or six of the best players in the world. And you think, oh man, this jam is going to be so humming and everyone's going to be telepathic and it's going to be amazing. And a lot of time it's kind of underwhelming. And I think it's because it is that much harder to make a five person, six person jam work than a two or three person jam. Now there's a lot of fun in that. It's like a different kind of game. Like I love mob hopping as much as the next person, but I do think that it is significantly harder to make it successful. What do you think? No, I think I use different tools. Like I approach a big part of it is how I think about what I want to do based on what the jam is. And like one of those things is how many people are in the jam is a big factor on how I play in the jam. And like before I go into the jam, I'm like, how big is it? What kind of tools I'm going to bring in? And I like set my expectations that if it's a big jam, it's going to be more complex and I'm going to need to do use like more one touch moves. And maybe if it's like, I always try and go into a jam when it's cold. So I'm going to go in and try and hit like that first catch right away to like fire up the jam. Well, let me, let me throw you a hypothetical and see if you agree. So yeah. I have a theory. I cannot confirm this, that if you looked at a couple objective measures, so let's say you just looked at catch percentage. I think that, if you account for talent level, meaning that you're looking at jams with equally skilled players, the catch percentage of a five-person jam is going to be far lower than the catch percentage of a two-person jam. Do you think that's right? I think that's correct. Now, I also think that's expected, though. It's, it's kind of like if the jam is performing at my expectations, then everything is fine. Yeah, I, so that's kind of, I think, what I meant when I said something like, you know, that's part of what mob upping is. And I like how you framed it in terms of expectation. So if you go into the mob op knowing that there's going to be a lot more drops, there's going to be a lot more miscommunications, but that's kind of part of the fun is trying to navigate that and figure that out, then it becomes acceptable. So I guess when I was saying before, like whether a GM is successful or not, I was kind of using that as a proxy for, you know, the catch percentage and like how many mistakes there are. But just because it's unsuccessful in terms of having more drops or more mishaps doesn't mean it's less fun necessarily. I mean, I think a lot of times mob ops are the most fun. We all have freestyling, even though it is pretty sloppy and things can get a little haywire. But like you said, we expect that to happen and it kind of works. Yeah. I wonder if we... Okay, yeah. go ahead. Like, a, I think a lot of what I want to do is be like, what should he do in the real world? Because we're going to spend like, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about like the theory. But like when we answer questions, I should, 
I want to give you a list. I know James hates this word, but like a list of action items you can do to respond to questions at the end. Okay, I do hate the word action items, but I do think you're right. And we haven't, we have probably not helped our anonymous freestyler who asked this question because we've given this person a great deal of theory, but not a great deal of practice. But I have a few ideas and I'm sure you could add to it for what you should do. And it does go to your point about one touch freestyle. And I think it's obvious by now what that is, but I mean, it, it really is just as soon as you get the disc, you're finding a way to get it out back to somebody else. But there's obviously a lot of questions about, well, what are the things you do that are one touch? What are the kind of moves that you have to facilitate the jam? And I'm actually going to go to a piece of advice I got from both Matt Gothier and Lisa Hunricks. They were kind of talking to me pretty early in my career. I think it was 2011 with Diff. And I think actually Matt had walked away and Lisa kind of said this to me. Um, I, w- I wouldn't say it was in confidence, but it was like a very perceptive thing that she said that I've never forgotten. She said, you know, I'm going to add this editorial. Like Matt was definitely by far the best player in the world at that time. And, you know, Lisa kind of said something like, for as great as Matt is, watch him when he freestyles and look at how simple it is. So when he's in a big jam, he's not pulling out crazy double spinning hammer pulls or super insane technical moves most of the time he's doing what everybody else does it's just a basic two-handed brush a basic kick brush a roll a catch whatever it's all very very simple and i think sometimes we get in our own heads about trying to do our hardest stuff and that really takes away from the jam And it even takes away from people's perception of our skills. Because when Lisa said that to me, I instantly realized it was true that I didn't often see Matt try crazy stuff in the jam. He was just doing all the basics. And yet I always perceived Matt as one of the best players in the world because doing the basics at a high level and making the right decisions is a huge part of being one of the best players. And, you know, I think about this a lot, like moves are pretty easy to copy. Like, I can learn to move pretty quickly, but learning to make the right decisions and having really good fundamentals takes a much longer time. And it's really, in my opinion, what separates the best players from everybody else. Yeah, I agree. I'm just going to reiterate one thing you said, which is the catching part. Like it's so important and like you can't catch too often. And if you're in a big jam and you don't know what to do, like just catch the disc and throw it, give a good throw right after. Yeah, I mean, keeping with blithering, Jake Coleman is one of my best friends. He's an ultimate player who learned how to do a little bit of freestyle with me. And Jake Coleman's motto is catch early, catch often. And one of the most impressive things about Jake is that even though he's on the lowest end of the spectrum of freestyle skill, I swear that he could go into any AGM and not bring it down. I know that sounds like kind of a backhanded compliment, but I I think it's a huge compliment. He could go into a jam with the best players in the world and none of them would be like, oh, this guy, he's dragging us down. They would just be like, okay, like he's catching it. He's keeping the disc moving. He's giving us good throws. There's nothing wrong with this. He's not bringing the jam down and he's keeping it moving. So I feel like, like you said, catcher, like catching is so valuable and you can, I'm so tempted to say that you can never catch it too early. I do think, especially at the highest, highest, highest philosophical levels of freestyle, you can catch it too early, but the list of people who have a problem catching it too much is zero. So I'm not exactly worried about that problem, 
but we can save for another episode the question of whether you can catch too early. <laughs> yep. I, yeah, I say that thing- as someone who I'm probably the I've been yelled at at least three times in my career because each one just like stuck a dagger in my heart. I've never forgotten them. I've been yelled at at least three times for catching too early in jams. And I remember each one. So I've thought about this question a lot, but we should save it for another episode. Okay. Yeah. Another thing we should say for another episode is you mentioned, I think you only need four moves to be in the A jam and not, and contribute just as much as everyone else. And none of them are the center delay. That's true. And none of them are that difficult, at least not that difficult to learn initially. Although I might push back later on whether you can get by without the delay. It depends on whether the other freestylers know how to play around you and the fact that you can't delay. But I'm going to think about that for another episode. Okay. Okay. So I think, I think we answered that question. Is, Is there anything I missed on that? Nope. I think we can get some follow-up questions. Yeah. And please write us in. So Ryan, you said you are the responsible one. You set up an email that people can send us questions, right? Yep. Clockercounter at gmail.com. Clockercounter at gmail.com. I still can't believe you got that email. I'm going to test it later tonight to make sure it actually works. But clock or counter, one word, no spaces, clockercounter at gmail.com, right? Yep. Okay, well, send us your questions. Send us your feedback. I, I should say, you know, Ryan and I, we, 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 if we could, we would walk around with badges on our shirt that say, help me. We are happy to take feedback. We're happy to take comments. We'll try to get better as we do this. We don't expect the podcast to be killing it at the very beginning. We're, we're a work in progress, so we're happy to get people's feedback and you know get better at doing this anything to add to that ryan nope i think you covered it all okay cool so why don't you clock us out here and tell everyone where they can find us yeah so you can find us on facebook uh just post the freestyle frisbee group or email us at clockercounter at gmail.com awesome and where do people get the podcast oh i think Apple Podcasts or wherever you download on your... So like Ryan said, you can get us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcast. And, and Ryan, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're actually going to be posting two podcasts at the beginning. This opening podcast, and then we have our video review of the Freestyle Frisbee World Championship 2022 coming at the same time, right? Exactly. We're going to have a ton of content to start with. Awesome. So check out those two podcasts, I guess, like, rate, subscribe, follow, whatever people do, and let us know what you think. And we'll talk to you soon.